Good evening and welcome. It's KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Tonight we'll hear once again from vocalist and trombonist Aubrey Logan. She has a new disc out in a few weeks, so last week we revisited her previous disc, Where the Sunshine is Expensive, and tonight we'll hear a portion of, well, what didn't fit on the previous program. From FNX, First Nations Experience, we have Frank Blanquette along with filmmaker Daniel Golding about the documentary Chasing Voices, the story of John Peabody Harrington, examining the life of an ethnographer who amassed over a million pages of notes documenting dying Native American languages. This will be on FNX and KVCR-TV in the very near future. Now, some venues are starting to open again, and among them, the Improv in Irvine with quite a headliner. Here's KVCR's Lillian Vasquez. My guest is actor, comedian, director, producer, author, and podcast host, Bob Saget. So many credits, but yet I'll never get an EGOT. (laughs) (laughs) Many will remember your role as Danny Tanner on Full House, but you have your own personality that is very different than Danny Tanner. So Personality, I think, is more like him. Really? Well, I, you know, I'm a dad of, of three daughters. Right. I'm very paternal when it comes to people. I'm very emotional. I am a clean freak. I, I like things orderly. Oh, that's funny. Um, I'm a hugger. <laughs> I, I brought hugging and cleaning to the character of Danny more than it was written. And so I was, a, you know, hugging. I guess the line was, I'm a lean, clean, hugging machine. <laughs> and so what people always have trouble understanding, especially if it's a television series, they think that that's you. But, you know, with people with movie careers, they go from dark to light. You know, Robin Williams from Mrs. Doubtfire to a movie like One Hour Photo, which was incredibly right. dark. Right. But, of course, you know Robin for the, may he rest in peace, all the beautiful work that he did. Robin Williams comes around every 150 years or something, but I don't really know the charting on that, so don't quote me. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a gift to do the show. I'll always look at it as that. I still feel very responsible. I feel like my comedy should be for people that are... It's really like an 11-year-old that learned a lot of words. That's kind of how my comedy always was. And it got judged by people and got loved by people. But at 17 years old, I was doing stand-up, and that's what my stand-up was. It was just irreverent, weird, askew kind of things. And then I also knew where you do those things and when you do them, and you do them in a club or you do them in a theater as I got more successful. And there's an age limit on that stuff. And with shows for a while, mature audiences only. And I'm not Mm. even... Because it was Danny Tanner and the video show host, I think people looked at it uh, much more dramatically than it really was. But I just am really excited embracing going on tour. I've never been this excited about stand-up in my whole life. Well, let me ask you about that. I know COVID affected everyone in one way or another, but the entertainment world was truly impacted. Now that things are opening up, you'll be back on stage doing comedy at the improv. What are you most looking forward to? There is something that happens with a live audience that Mm. it's indescribable to anyone unless they've done it. Mm. And stand-up is not a one-way street. Even Jerry Seinfeld's famous quote is, it's a discourse, even though he doesn't talk to the audience. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to hear responses, but they are responding. Their laughs are the other part of the conversation. The moment I take the microphone out of the stand, it's like slow motion for me. It's like Mm. that moment 
of it's not a violent moment like taking a sword out of a sheath and going into battle. Mm-hmm. It's a moment of, oh, man, this is my living room. And that's the intimacy that you can have in stand-up that you can have in nothing else. Mm-hmm. It's just a gift that I get to do it and that they get, they laugh. And I I get to bring happiness to them that night. And it's a shared experience. And when I'm in the improv in Irvine mm-hmm. on the 23rd and 24th, I have four shows. The beauty of those shows is that room seats like 490, mm-hmm. but they're going to be at a reduced of 190 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they get to eat and drink there. So there's it's a nightclub. It is the most semblance to reality before this horrible time we've all lived through together. And so I feel like I'm celebrating with them that we get to do this. Right on. And, and I'm fully inoculated, which so, <laughs> let's but we don't know what that even means anymore. Some people say that means you can't carry it, but I'm not going to be close enough to accidentally. Nothing will fly out of my mouth into their nachos. <laughs> will and, your comedy reflect this past year, or what will the flavor be, or will it be different? What will it be? It's completely different. Okay. I mean, some of the material I, I was doing before was not for my last special. It's not stuff people have seen, but it, it's really a time of reflection. So mm. yes, I'm going to talk about what we did. I think most comedians will discuss it. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to go politics or religion or anything because why? Yeah. Because that's not what I'm there to do. I'm there to entertain them. I have a bunch of new songs that I've written that I get to finally unveil again. <laughs> and comedy songs are very specific. There's a different kind of thing. A lot of people do them, but I've been doing them since I started you do it almost as if it's its own self-standing story. And I'm able to write a tune. And so I I play the guitar to the best of my ability since I'm 11. I never really grew since then on guitar. But I know that it's everything's different. When I say something that could be possibly offensive, I will be apologizing for two minutes before it and three minutes after it. So it could be a long show. (laughs) You know, it's like... My opening comment is probably, um, I don't want to offend anybody, so good night. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But I was going to do a drive-in. I was going to do the Irvine Spectrum Improv Mm drive-in, and it was all set to go, and I was going to do it right before. uh, I think it would have been two weeks before this 23rd and 24th of April date, and they said, no, let's cancel that because we're we're going to stop drive-ins. We're moving inside. And I went, wow, Yeah. okay, I'm, I'm your man. That was KVCR's Lillian Vasquez in conversation with Bob Saget, headlining the grand reopening weekend at the Irvine Improv with shows at 7.30 p.m. and 9.45 p.m. Friday, April 23rd, and at 7 and 9.30 p.m. Saturday, April 24th. Now, if you're catching this show on the Sunday rebroadcast, Saget will be back in Irvine in the near future. More at improv.com Irvine. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, streaming live at kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming. Later in the program, we'll hear once again from singer and trombonist Aubrey Logan. She has a new disc out in a few weeks, so last week we revisited her previous release, Where the Sunshine is Expensive. Tonight, some of her influences, playing with Dave Cause and more. First, though, here is Frank Blanquette, producer at FNX, with a piece originally aired on FNX Now and a look at a very recent documentary, which will be on both FNX and KVCR-TV in the very near future. 
J.B. Harrington was a one-of-a-kind American ethnologist and linguist. His transcription of native words is extremely accurate. The recording machine was a very top-secret type of thing. None of us had any idea what the extent of that documentation was. But as soon as he died, we began to find out. But most important, I think that people need to understand that our language was taken from us. We were not allowed to speak it. And that's why it's gone. Bas this is Frank Blanquette. Today, we are happy to welcome filmmaker Daniel Golding. Daniel is from the Kachan Indian Nation in Winter Haven, California. His film, Chasing Voices, the story of John P. Body Harrington, can be seen on PBS stations across the country starting on April 30th and on FNX starting May 2nd. Check your local listings. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey there, Frank. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and, and thanks for uh, inviting me to, to speak a little bit. I really like this film. It highlights California tribes who are often ignored by mainstream media. Before we delve into the film uh, and, and talk about the film and, and your film career, um, let's talk about your community. What can you tell us about Winter Haven? Uh, it is in California, but it's right at the border of Arizona. So talk to us about your town, your tribe, and what the Kachan Indian Nation, uh, about the Kachan Indian Nation, and how the reservation came about uh, and how it split. So I'm, uh, I'm an enrolled member of the Kachan Nation. We're located right uh, on the Colorado River. Uh, our reservation actually borders uh, Mexico and uh, goes into Arizona a little bit, crosses over into Arizona. Uh, I think we're at one time we were, or maybe we still are, the second largest tribe in California. Um, I'm not sure if that's land-wise or if it's uh, population, but uh, you know we're related in the same way to other human tribes like uh, the Mojave, the Cumia in San Diego. Linguistically, we're 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 the same. Uh, come from the same language family and uh, we've been there since you know creation we haven't been uh, we haven't been removed we haven't been pushed off we've always been there we're still connected to the the territory uh, you know the mountains and, and sacred sites are all all there that we continue to to fight for and protect uh, we've always uh, been like the the sort of the for Yuma, it was always sort of the, the narrow point across the Colorado River. And for thousands of years, the Quetzon sort of, uh, you know, possessed that and pretty much managed that, you know. So anybody that wanted to cross, we would have to go <laughs> go through there. And uh, to a certain extent, uh, you know, it's still that way, right? Um, but uh, there's a lot of history, a lot of, a lot of stuff there. Um, I think linguistically, I think we're you know, in some ways, it, you know, since we're isolated, we've been down there, not too many people have heard of us and, uh, and things. So we're, you know, I think linguistically, we're still pretty strong. We have quite a few speakers left of our language, although, uh, you know, that that's, uh, you know, that's shrinking because, you know, most of the, the, the speakers are, you know, over 50 uh, in their 60s and 70s. And so, uh, you know, we're making and trying to make an effort to try to bring, you know, keep that on and stuff, bring it back and things. So uh, facing the same problems with the other like other tribes. But, uh, you know, we're we're uh, so part of our reservation sits in Arizona in part in in California. 
which I think is kind of kind of rare, you know, to have a reservation in two states and stuff like that. And then and probably would have extended down in Mexico if the border wasn't there. You know, we had people, tribal members living down in Mexico as well and may probably still do, at, you know, somewhere down there. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I moved back to the reservation, you know, gosh, it must have been over like like 20 years now after I graduated from San Francisco State in film and really came back to use uh, film and media as a tool to help preserve and uh, uh, our, our, our ways, you know, um, traditions and uh, things like that, language and stuff. So, uh, you know, we were, we're only supposed to be here four years and I'm still here 20 years later. So, uh, I've, I've, you know, and I feel like uh, that's sort of been what I've been, you know, that I think that's what I wanted to do, you know, in some ways, but yeah. Let's talk about um, your career as a filmmaker. How do you decide that this is the career path that, that you want to take? When, when do you make that decision? I, you know, when I, when I look back, like when I decided to finally go back to school, you know, I did carpentry and construction for many years before I went back to school. And uh, I, I just sort of made a conscious decision that I was going to go back to school for film. And uh, I thought like this would be a great sort of tool to use to, uh, uh, you know, get our stories out. I thought that people needed to hear more about Native America and I thought this would be a great way to do it. And so, uh, you know, that's what I did. I made that conscious decision to do that. Uh, the second sort of decision was uh, after I graduated from San Francisco State was not to really go, not to decide to go back to uh, graduate school. Uh, how can I use film and media now to, uh, you know, get the message out or, or build our stories and things like that. And I really wanted to focus more on narratives, you know, writing feature films and doing narrative productions, but uh, you know, it's tough. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of money in there. Right. I mean, um, unless you go to a, you know, a, you know, a, you know, one of the big studios or try to get your foot in the door with something like that. But uh, you know, uh, I thought this would be better. So I started doing more documentary work and uh um, you know, and, and, and I got to say, it's, it's a hustle, right? It's, it's a lot of hard work, right? You know, to do this kind of stuff. It's not easy. Um, but I enjoy the fact of going out and meeting new people and, you know, discovering and learning about uh, not only our, our tribal history, but other people's histories um, uh, and stories. You know, it, it's like uh, when I did my, uh, my Wyla film, my Chicken Scratch film back uh, a long time ago, 15 years ago, um, you know, I, I came across this family, the, the Joaquin family, and we became real good friends and uh, we still remain friends. So there's, there's a big part of that, you know, when you meet people and you, you know, uh, connect and stuff like that. So, um, but, uh, it, and it, it hasn't been easy, right? You know, it's, it's always a struggle because of, uh, you know, you have to do your own fundraising a lot of the times. I'm not, you know, working for anybody, but, uh, I work for myself as an independent, so I'm always sort of on the hustle to try to raise funds <laughs> to do films. And uh, I'm sure you're aware about all this stuff too, right? You know, I mean, it's it's it could be tough. Uh, Absolutely. You know, um, go out there. It's very competitive sometimes. Some of the grants and things like that that you have to go for uh, is is pretty tough. Uh, 
So, but you know, you got to do it and you got to, you know, try to do it. If you really believe in what you're the story that you're trying to tell and what you're doing, then, you know, uh, yeah, you, you got to do it. But, uh, uh, it hasn't gotten any easier. <laughs> and right now I used to love to go out and run around, but now that I have, uh, you know, three kids and stuff like that, it, it makes it a little bit tougher, but, um, uh, but I, I, I still enjoy it, you know, I, I enjoy it. And I think this is kind of where I'm committed. I'm more, I think right now, wanting to do more of the, the producing role, right? Uh, and things like that. And try to uh, work with younger native filmmakers or, or people so they can start, you know, uh, taking on the, the next, they'll, they'll, they'll be the next new storytellers to kind of do all this stuff. Plus, you know, I, you know, I, I work with other tribes as well. Sometimes I get hired to do, contracted to work and, uh, you know, produce projects for them as well. You know, people like the way I tell my stories and things like that. And they want me to uh, work with them. And I do, you know, so uh, I really, in which I enjoy, you know, I, I, I enjoy that as well. So, and the youth, I love working with youth, you know, they, they got some great stories too. So. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, you see a lot of youth filmmakers coming out of native communities as well. And so I'm glad that you're doing some of that work with, with uh, younger filmmakers and your work from pretty much the time that you launched your career has really been community and traditionally minded. I know, um, you know, reading some of the stuff that you've done, uh, your first film premiered at, at Sundance um, in 1998. Uh, that was a, a short and it was called when the fire dims. What was right. that like having a film premiere and how early in your career was that? And what was it like having a film premiere at Sundance? Wow, you know, uh, that's <laughs> such a long time ago, right? But uh, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I was really surprised. Uh, you know, I, I was a, I was a senior at uh, San Francisco State. I was still going to school. Uh, this was my senior project. Uh, and uh, I, I wrote it and directed it. And, um, you know, it was... Uh, uh, that was back in the day when we actually, you know, shot on film, right. And cut on film and stuff like that. So it was all shot on 16 millimeter film, uh, you know, uh, sent off to the lab to get, you know, <laughs> uh, produced and, you know, cut on a flatbed and, you know, all that good stuff, uh, back in the day. Uh, but you know, it, it was, I was really surprised that, uh, you know, that it got to play at Sundance, you know, especially being in still in college, you know, my senior year and uh, uh, being shown at, uh, you know, a nice prestigious festival at that time was really, uh, it was, it was really kind of eye-opening, you know, for me as a, as just coming out, you know, of a college and, you know, uh, filmmaking and stuff like that. So, um, and people, you know, it, it, I think people still resonate with the story today. And, and at that time, if, if anybody hadn't seen the movie, it has to deal with uh, sort of uh, internal trauma of, you know, being an alcoholic, you know, being removed and uh, from your reservation and always being reminded that you are, you know, colonized in a way, you know, in, internally, right? And, uh, and things. So, there was this big scene in the movie where we threw this bottle of wine at this statue, you know, and in San Francisco. And I remember, uh, you know, filming that scene, you know, guerrilla style, you know, out there, <laughs> you know, throwing the bottle and then, you know, taking off and running after we get the shot. But, uh, and, and the reason why I did that was I remember that uh, statue as being uh, 
very demeaning to us as native people. You know, you had a Spanish missionary standing over, uh, you know, a native man who was, uh, you know, kind of submersive to him, you know. And, uh, and I, I thought it was totally inappropriate that that statue was there and it just, you know, enraged me. So we, we incorporated that in the film because that sort of symbolized everything about colonization and colonialism. And, um, and uh, it, was, it was nice to know like a few years ago that the city finally, finally took that statue out. You know, it's no longer there anymore, but it took, you know, like 20 years before, you know, they finally did it, you know. But uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that, that was, that was a great experience, Sundance, you know, going to there and then showing it, it, you know, it showed all over the world, you know, in Australia and I don't know where, I can't remember where else it showed in Europe too, but uh, yeah, it was neat, you know, and I, I, you know, and some good things happened out of that, you know, I took, you know, some um, uh, screenwriting workshops to develop my next, you know, feature film, which never really happened because, uh, you know, financially I was struggling, but uh, as a struggling artist, right. Uh, But uh, yeah, and then um, it just kind of went from there, you know, then I went back, back home and started working within the community and doing my own projects. And, you know, my second one, big one was probably, you know, uh, while I'm making the people happy, which got PBS funding uh, to do and has uh, screened, you know, all over the place as well. So, uh, but, you know, like you said, it's all community based. And I think that's, that's really what's uh, I like is that people from the communities really sort of resonate to those films and stuff. Yeah. But it's been, uh, and then there's all the little ones in between, you know, <laughs> that happened. So, yeah. Wayla making the people happy was your first project that I watched. And uh, what, what can you tell us about that film? Um, was that the first time that you worked with Vision Maker Media? And for anyone that doesn't know, Vision Maker Media is a funder and distributor of native and indigenous films within public television and the PBS system. What can you tell us about uh, Wayla? Well, yeah, yeah, that was the first time I got funded through uh, Vision Maker. And at that time, it wasn't called Vision Maker. It was called uh, uh, Native American Public, public Television. Tele- yeah, tele- yeah, NAPT, I think. Like yeah, that, NAPT. So yeah, that tells you how long ago it was. But uh, yeah, it, it was a great experience. And I think, um, you know, Vision Maker... Uh, you know, PBS and the minority consortiums and stuff like that, like, uh, you know, Vision Maker, which is, you know, for Native American filmmakers, is has been always been real helpful uh, to help us try to get our stories out, you know, to the via public television and things. And, and Wyla was, uh, was my first real project that got funded for PBS. And, uh, you know, and I thought well, that was just, you know, a great experience to have that happen at that time. But it was really challenging because uh, uh, when I was doing that film, I was working with my co-producer at the time, his, his man, uh, Jamie Kibben, who was in San Francisco, was uh, a, you know, well-accomplished independent filmmaker. And he was sort of my, he became my mentor in a lot of ways after I got out of college uh we decided to work on this project together he became a co-producer on this project and we got funded through through uh NAPT or Vision Maker and uh unfortunately he uh he passed away before he could really help me on the project right because he was on a shoot in I think France or something like that and he uh got in a car accident over there passed away so uh I ended up having to do it all on my own. So it was kind of like getting thrown into the wolves, right? You know, and to uh, 
I mean, you have to do it right. Sink or swim. And, uh, and so I learned a lot about the whole public broadcasting, you know, system and how, how it works and things. So, but vision maker has always been really, really supportive of, uh, of me and my work and other, other native people's work. So I think they're really important to the whole PBS, you know, system, you know, and, uh, and I think that uh, if other people who are interested should think about applying to them as well, you know, because I, I think they're, they, they have a lot of uh, opportunities, you know, to help, you know, filmmakers at all different levels, right, uh, get started and things like that, right. Now, I, I had a chance to visit with you uh, during the community release of Decade of Dominance, The Warriors, which is a great feel-good story about uh, the Warriors football team and feel good stories, uh, native stories are really missing in mainstream media. Um, what can you tell us about Decade of Dominance and about that premiere that that I had a chance to visit with you on? I, I think you brought up a good point. You know, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, another thing about my my projects is, is, is trying to keep it more, you know, instead of focusing on the negative, focus more on the positive, you know, uh, such as like, you know, language revitalization, you know, the, the music of uh, Wyla, or, you know, the story of decade and dominance and the, the football team uh, here. Um, and so the, the whole story, if you're not familiar with decade of dominance, <clears throat> it's about the, the high school football team back in the 70s on the reservation and uh, they're winning multiple uh, Arizona state championships. The first and only high school that I know of that play 11 man football and have won a state championship in 11 man football uh, from a reservation. <clears throat> and they, uh, they were playing a lot bigger schools, you know, in, in Phoenix and Arizona and some in California. Um, and they were whipping their butts, you know, <laughs> got these big old quitsons out there, you know, dominating and uh, people were pretty, pretty scared of them. But it was it was a pretty positive story about uh, not only about the football team, but about the coach as well. Coach Denny Mundell, who just before the premiere happened, he had passed away unexpectedly and uh, which really shocked everybody because we weren't you know, prepared for that. And he never, never really had the opportunity to see, you know, to experience that the the opening and, you know, all the people that came to to see it and stuff and uh, and things. So it was it was a really uh, you know kind of um, sad but uh, happy moment in the same way because we accomplished it for the community uh, and everyone came out to watch it. The theater was packed. We rented a theater in town and it was totally packed and that was pretty awesome to watch, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a documentary, it's a true story, but it has that kind of bad news bears or my yeah. ducks feel, feel to it for sure. Um, so your, your film chasing voices, the story of John Peabody Harrington is being showcased on PBS stations across the country and here on FNX. What can you tell us about this film? So Chasing Voices is a story, well, of John P. Petty Harrington. Uh, if you're not familiar with who John Harrington in is, he's a, he was a linguist that worked in the early uh, ethnographer of, uh, so early, like from 1907 to, uh, till when he died in 1961. And uh, he was gifted in the sense of like, he had a really good 
ear for language. Like he, his thing was, is that he could, he could document, hear the language and doc, document it, you know, phonetically, uh, accurately on paper. And so that was his thing and he can do it quickly and fast. And so, uh, he loved to, that was, was his passion to do that. And so uh, he worked with over, I think, 150 different tribes, not only in California, but throughout the United States and, uh, and, and also in Mexico. And uh, he compiled over a million pages of notes on all these different languages. And, um, uh, and most of these languages, so Harrington was a little bit paranoid and he, he had feared like people might steal his work. So he hid most of it. And not until after he was after he passed away did they realize how just about how much work he had done, and uh, some of those languages hadn't been spoken in you know you know fifty years and uh, were considered to be dead, but uh, based on his notes they were able to revive those languages and stuff like that. And so today all of his all of his work is sitting in the Smithsonian, and uh, people can access the the notes and look at them and see what's on there, you know? And uh, I mean, uh, so it's, it's, it's like a treasure trove of information uh, that, that's there for people that are interested in, you know, preserving language and things like that. So he was, he was you know, he was an interesting character, right? So his story sort of leads into this, this idea or what's happening now with tribes and uh, the need to, uh, you know, how, how language was lost, uh, and then also what tribes are doing today to, to bring back their languages. And so we don't, in the film, we kind of profile like uh, three different tribes, uh, mainly because, you know, his work area was so big, right? And he'd done so much work that uh, we just picked, you know, three tribes to represent his work. And that, uh, you know, basically that was, you know, copied in each area, each area that he worked, right? So all he would do, you know, is go into these communities, you know, immerse himself in those communities and be there for who knows how long and just start, you know, uh, documenting language. And then the neat thing about Harrington's uh, work was that he would just, you know, document whatever people said. So conversation and things like that. Uh, was all written down and he would just, you know, so, so people today uh, are able to revive their language because they're hearing the conversation, they're hearing the, the nuances of the language and things like that um, and stuff, which is, I think is needed if you're going to, you know, rebuild your language and stuff like that. So that's, that's what the story is about, Harrington and his work uh, with the different tribes and, you know, and uh, kind to bring awareness to the idea of uh, the importance of language in communities and, you know, the rebuilding and the, you know, the, the, the trauma that's still there as well, you know, with uh, historical trauma and the language loss and how that plays a big role in who we are as native people. So. Yeah. Now, when you watch your work, um, when you watch it with an audience, what goes through your mind? What is, what, what's that feeling like when you see an elder that maybe has passed on screen, when you see the faces in the audience and the reaction, what does that do for you as a filmmaker? And what does it do for you as a native community member? That's pretty tough. You know, I mean, uh, I think like sometimes when you see like these people, I wish they could be here to watch the movie, you know, and see it. 
I, I also think it's pretty, uh, you know, it's like, wow, you know, here, you know, I mean, you know, time is of the essence as sort of what Harriet would say, right? We need to do as much as we can because we're, we're losing them and things. So uh, it's hard to watch, but I, I feel lucky that I was able to record what I did with them, you know? So now whatever I did film with them, is saved and it's archived and you know it's available for people and for the tribes right that they have that little bit of information whatever uh, they you know i recorded for them the the main thing i think about is like man i wish they were here to watch this you know and see it you know because uh you know uh especially like somebody like jack marr who was harrington's assistant you know who uh was really excited about doing the film and at the time when I interviewed him, he was like 98 or something like that. And, uh, you know, I was hoping that we could get this film done quick so we could watch it, but unfortunately he didn't. And then uh, also some of the other ones that are in the film to the Mojave elders as well. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, I feel like uh, that it's, it's just never ending, right? We just got to keep working and doing our best to document all this stuff as best we can. And hopefully this, uh, this film will help uh, encourage others to start, you know, researching and learning and, and doing what they can to preserve their languages. You know, I think in a sense, we're, we're lucky that uh, we're, we're in positions to record people's, people's voices and then share it with their family for generations to come. So I think it's, you know, that's one of the blessings of being a, a filmmaker within native community that you're able to, to do that. Yeah, you know, and, and what's interesting too is like uh, for me and my family, like uh, there's recordings of my great grandfather, Alfred Golding at the Smithsonian, who was a, uh, uh, who used to sing the, the deer songs for our tribe. And so Francis Densmore came through here back in, you know, like 1920 and recorded this stuff on wax cylinders. So I was able to hear, you know, like my great grandfather's, you know, voice recorded. Uh, you know, singing deer songs. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. So in some ways, we're just carrying that on too, right? So now we're going to save all this stuff. And so, you know, 100 years from now, somebody's going to be able to go back and look at it and see their great grandfather as well, you know, so which will be cool. Now, Decade of Dominance, The Warriors can hopefully be seen on FNX in the near future. The film Chasing Voices, the story of John P. Harrington, can be seen on PBS and public television stations across the country starting on April 30th and on FNX beginning May 2nd. Check your local listings. More information is at hokanmedia.com. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you having me on. It's always good to talk to you, Frank. That is all the time we have for today. For FNX Now, I'm Frank Blanket. Dios Boatique. Again, that was Frank Blanquette from FNX along with filmmaker Daniel Golding. The documentary, Chasing Voices, the story of John Peabody Harrington, will be on FNX Sunday, May 2nd at 5 p.m. and Saturday, May 8th at noon. It'll also be on KVCR-TV Saturday, May 8th at 11 p.m. I'm David Fleming. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR. Streaming live at kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming. Thanks to listening, contributing members like Jack in Claremont, Kent in Rancho Cucamonga, and Terry in Glendora. Let's go now to singer and trombonist Aubrey Logan. We spoke last week about her CD, Where the Sunshine is Expensive. Tonight, well, simply a portion of what we couldn't fit last week. No matter who I listen to, no matter who I'm influenced by, 
mm-hmm. they are influencing three things for me. Mm. My trombone playing, my singing, and my songwriting. It doesn't matter if they do any of those things at all. It doesn't matter if they don't even sing or songwrite or play the trombone. But I know people sometimes will look at what I do and say, you do several different things. You arrange for your band, you write songs, you sing, and you play trombone. That's four things. To me, that's one thing. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's one brain. That's one, that's one me. Well, I think that's the left side of it. Well, now that I think about it, yeah. <laughs> to me, that's one thing. But my influences are the Doobie Brothers. Oh, good for and you. And Carole King. Good for you. And Wolfpack and Tower of Power. <laughs> wow. And Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and Beethoven and Radiohead and Linkin Park. And anything where I can believe what kind of music it is you're giving to me and there's some level of excellence, I'm in. Beautiful. I don't care if it's two chords or it's 16, you know. Wow. I'm David Fleming in conversation with Aubrey Logan. More at AubreyLogan.com. Just ahead, sitting in with Tower of Power, singing Jimi Hendrix with tap dance accompaniment, and Scott Bradley and Postmodern Jukebox with some mashups. Postmodern Jukebox is something that Scott Bradley began in his living room, then it took off from there. Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes You say sorry just for But you never let it go Cause baby now we got bad blood You know we used to be mad love So take a look what you've done Cause baby now we got bad blood Hey, I can't take it back, look where I'm at We was on D like D.O.C., remember that? Scott was making his videos, I believe, in his New Jersey apartment and went completely viral and he began putting on tours with various guest artists that he would have had on his video. And Postmodern Jukebox is not a band. You don't show up and see the same cast every time. In fact, you don't know who you're going to see when you go to a Postmodern Jukebox show because everyone who sings and fronts them are guest artists and almost like a big SNL family. So I was already making my own arrangements I wasn't making them sound necessarily vintage, but I would take, because Postmodern Jukebox does make new songs sound vintage. That is absolutely what they do. But I would do something similar. I would take popular songs and twist them and turn them into something jazzy or something totally different. And I believe Scott saw something, maybe got recommended. Shoshana Bean recommended me to Scott Bradley. She's a friend of mine, a fabulous singer on Broadway right now as the waitress. And so I got a call from Scott and he asked to do a collaboration. So I said, well, my first time with Postman and Jukebox, it better be good. So (laughs) I sent him a shell arrangement that I had done with this bass and my voice of Taylor Swift's Bad Blood, but with the rapper. And he put some of his ideas on it and we collaborated and came up with Bad Blood. And he's a genius. I mean, he knows every song in the world. I can't believe it. You'll call a song and he'll play it. He'll play it in ragtime perfectly right there in front of you. I think he's an encyclopedia. I don't know what kind of index his brain is, but it's amazing. And he really is a showman, and he really knows how to reach people. And so, you know, once I did my first couple videos with him, it was not long before I joined and went on a tour with Post Manager Fox as well. 
met some of the best friends I'll ever have and some of the best fans I'll ever have. Nice. Oh, now we got problems, and I don't think we can solve them. did give it away in the style of Quincy Jones, Soul Bossa Nova, the Austin Powers thing. Did you bring that to the table or was that Scott? That was just a crazy brainstorming <laughs> session. I said it in joke. I said jokingly once, we should do a Red Hot Chili Pepper song. <laughs> and Scott said, how about like Austin Powers? And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And then it happened. If people actually check out these videos, this almost transitions to a couple of tap dancing things that I kind of have to ask you about. These are just videos. If you go searching like I did, you will find a couple of of Aubrey uh, accompanied by tap dancing. We'll start with Jimi Hendrix's Fire. Call her out at some point. Instead of let Jimmy take over, you've got to let Sarah take over. Move over, over, and let Sarah take over. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. This is Sarah Rice. Yeah, she's the best tap dancer in the world, and she's one of my good friends that I met via Postmodern Jukebox. Um, she has really shown our current audience that tap dancing is the hippest, most incredible thing. She teaches dancers all around the world how to talk to musicians Hmm. because she is not just a dancer, but she's an instrumentalist with her feet. And she she made a jazz album, and she's one of the most musical people I know. Um, So I had her on my first album. She tap danced with her partner in crime, Melinda Sullivan, on my first single, Pistol. pistol, And then I had her join me for uh, homage to Jimi Hendrix. I, I was making an an EP of songs called Your Mom's Favorite Songs of songs from the 70s and 80s and 60s and I said which which song do you want to do Sarah because I want you on this 
And she said, well, you know that Jimi Hendrix song, A Fire? And I said, yeah. And she said, you know all those drum fills at the beginning? I said, yeah. And she's like, I'm going to tap those. I said, all right. And that's what we did. Quickly then on Dave Cause. On Where the Sunshine is Expensive, we have him on Laundry and Put It Where You Want It. You were on tour with him recently, and uh, even then on his 2019 cruise. So first, I guess, gosh, uh, we see a clip with you sitting in with Tower of Power, what is hip? Dave Cause got Tower of Power to do a show on our on the Dave Cause cruise because they were already touring in Australia, and we happened to be there. So they came up on the boat, and we all got a chance to sit in with them, which was really, I'm a huge, Michael McDonald and Tower of Power, there they are. I, My two, oh, I'm just, I'm starstruck by both, but I did get the chance to sit in with Tower of Power, and it was one of the most um, amazing experiences in my life. I sat in between Doc, very sax player, and uh, the lead trumpet player, and that was a wall of sound, let me tell you. Yeah, I'd say. But, uh, yeah. But I met Dave Cause uh, two years ago, or three years ago, when I first, in the night, he had me on his 2017 cruise, which I did, and I met him through a friend in Postman and Jukebox named Ariana Savalas. Hmm. And, yes, her dad is Telly Savalas. And um, uh-huh. I then went, made an album with Dave because he made a collaboration album called The Summer Horns. Yeah. And he had Gerald Albright, Richard Elliott, Rick Braun, Dave, mm-hmm. and myself as the artists on that album. So Dave has introduced me to a whole world of people who I've always admired. Uh, we did a we did a rendition of Conga by Miami Sound Machine and Gloria Estefan and I sang it on that album and then she ended up singing background on it which was wacky, yeah. uh, by her choice. Mm-hmm. And then um, got to work with Gordon Goodwin through Dave. So Dave is not I have more to thank Dave Cause for than I'll ever be able to. Let's say, yeah. Uh, on that uh, What Is Hip video clip, by the way, it's just a lot of people having fun. This is the Trading Licks session of it. And just everybody comes forward for a moment. Is it? She's not credited anywhere, but did I see Candy Dolfer a couple of... Uh, you did. Okay. She okay. was there with us, too. Wow. Huge Groove was there with us. Mm. And the other members of the Summer Horns were there with us. It was just a big party. I can't even put words to it. It was so self-indulgent. We were just up there having a good old time with our favorite band in the world. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Also at AubreyLogan.com. You will see all the discs that you just mentioned, the Summer Horns, also the prequel years, which I have to get, and Impossible. Uh, (laughs) Are these all available through your website? Can folks order it right there? They can. Only Impossible and Where the Sunshine is Expensive are available by physical copy, but everything else is streamable and downloadable. The Summer Horns album is also available by physical copy as well. Nice. Thank you so much for your time. Not only, uh, gosh, a few days ago in studio and just now, you're about to go do a sound check. Thank you so much for taking your time out. You could have been warming up. I appreciate it. You are so kind to have me on your show. I'm really excited about this.
Music and conversation once again from Aubrey Logan to round out this edition of KVC Arts. She has a new disc out in a few weeks with more at AubreyLogan.com. Thanks again to Aubrey Logan, Bob Saget, and Daniel Golding. At FNX, thanks to Frank Blanquette. And here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, and Sharina Wad. Music beds and themes heard on KVCR. It's composed and performed by Sean Longstreet. So thanks to Sean as well. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, and NPR One. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. Thank you.